don't come back with us and say you made me lose ten million dollars. Put a disclaimer, like a <laughs> yeah. like a financial advice podcast. Yeah, does, we should have. Or... You make sure we have that disclaimer in the opening. Um, <laughs> we do not leverage the farm on <laughs> your whiskey brand based on this advice. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen, and I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. We're not in the business of consulting to brands or distilleries, but a few months ago, we asked you to submit your questions about brand building, and we'll give our honest feedback, opinions, and advice. And in this episode, we take a few questions from you, and some are from entrepreneurs that are looking to start their own brand about what types of spirits to offer based on their location. Plus, our thoughts on using unconventional grains like oats, buckwheat, and rice. We also analyze labels, because how important is it to see stuff like rare, super premium, handcrafted, or even non-chill filtered on the label itself? Lastly, a brand begins to scale or potentially halts growth. So when is the right time to add a new state for distribution? If you want to ask questions like these about brand consultation or anything related, go ahead and send it to us. But please, nothing related to the distillation process because, we'll be honest, we're not chemical engineers. Shoot us a message at info at bourbonpursuit.com and we may read your question next time we record a show like this. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Jeff Oberts who writes me on fredminnick.com. I recently read a book on the history of bourbon. The author claimed that most information and the dates listed on bottles of bourbon are falsified. What is the purpose of falsifying the information, and would you agree with his comment? Well, Jeff, I think that might actually have been me. I think that was in my book, uh, Bourbon Curious, and I said something like, bourbon labels uh, rival political ads for bullshit per square inch. And, And the fact is, there's only a handful of things that are trusted information on a whiskey label. Everything else is fanciful. Wouldn't say falsified, but fanciful, meaning that it's just marketing. For example, small batch is a fanciful term. Small batch doesn't mean jack shit. You have this thought in your brain that it means like there's a handful of barrels going into a batch, when in reality, we're talking hundreds, even a thousand barrels could go into a batch and they could call it small batch and get away with it. It's not a legal term. It is a fanciful term. Things like uh, proof, age statements, those are actually governed. So an age statement is is the age of the youngest barrel in the batch and a proof is how the government taxes. That's how they base their percentage of, of taxes on a bottle of whiskey. So those things are are verified by by the government. But for the most part, like the backstories where you see like my great grandpappy had this recipe, it's usually not true. They usually have the same recipe as MGP. Uh, so anything that feels uh, marketing is just fanciful, unuseful terminology for really what's inside the whiskey. Another one would be like handcrafted. Just just not a useful term. Like everything's handcrafted, you know? I mean, my the blinds I'm looking at blocking the sun from my office right now, those are technically handcrafted because handcrafted doesn't mean shit. As long as a human hand touched them at some point, that's handcrafted. So, uh, Jeff, I would be curious to know if it was my book that uh, you were reading and you didn't realize that I had written it. But, you know, um, that'd be funny. But I know other authors share ha, share that opinion and have written something similar uh, in the past. But that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. If you want to be like Jeff, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click the contact button. Send me your idea. And if I like it, I'll read it on the air. Till next week. Cheers. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean, 
instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to knowsyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com. And you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of Bourbon Pursuit coming at you. The whole team here, Kenny and Ryan. Hello. Hello. I'm here again. Mr. Fred Minnick himself. What up? On up in here. And we're coming back with a a two-parter here. You know, we had actually done our first one talking about what is it like to give some free consultation advice. And there was a lot more questions that we didn't get to. And we were kind of looking at our list of topics and everybody said, let's just do another one of these. And I said, okay, let's do it. Why not? Let's just do a two-parter because there's a lot of interesting things in here and we can give our perspective on on what people should do and how they should take their business and uh, also take this with a grain of salt. Don't come back at us and say, you made me lose $10 million. Do we put a disclaimer, like a, <laughs> like a financial advice podcast. Yeah, does, we should have. Or... You make sure we have that disclaimer in the opening. Um, <laughs> we do not leverage the farm on your whiskey brand based on this advice. Yeah, we, we are only here to give as much opinions, as, as much so. as, yeah, expert opinions as we can. Mm-hmm. But even at expert, we still give ourselves a, What's a yardstick, if you will. So you guys ready to get into it? Let's do it. Yeah, because this was this was a fun one last time. So let's kind of do the first one here. So this one is actually coming from overseas and it's coming from Alan. And he says, greetings. I'm in love with craftsmanship and I'm thinking of to opening a small craft distillery around one to three thousand bottles a year. I live on the countryside in Croatia and I have all the ingredients that I need for different kinds of spirits. Till now, I've just been making for my own personal needs. I do these things called mistletoe brandy, which is actually popular in my regional level and amongst different tourists. But it's also different than others that are in my region, and it's also very good. I was thinking that to be my flagship product, but I would also like to make other kinds of spirits. This is gin, whiskey, and vodka. Would you recommend me to start with or to focus on my particular mistletoe brandy or to make a bunch of different products? Well... First off, one to three thousand bottles is probably not going to be enough to pay for anything anything that you need. So you need to think a little bit bigger than that. First of all, but I mean, I I would go with what you like best. What do you think you can? If you like mistletoe brandy, if you're passionate about mistletoe brandy, yeah, I mean, you can make gin and vodka and whatever. You know, Fred loves vodka. He'll be a customer for life. Um, <laughs> if you can make it's mistletoe only, vodka, be maybe, maybe mistletoe vodka. He'll like that, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I mean, find the product you're passionate about and that you're going to like put your name, you know, your name on, hang your hat on like this is my my thing. And I mean, you could, you know, to pay the bills, get a gin or contract to still some stuff for people. But uh, yeah, I mean, I would I'm, I'm more about being unique and having something that's a differentiator because uh, there's a ton of everyday same products out there. They're just packaged differently. It's kind of boring to me. 
do something exciting. We also realize that we're you're talking to three guys that live in Kentucky. Sure, um, we're we're not in Croatia. I've never been to Croatia. I heard yeah. it's awesome. I heard it's beautiful. Yeah, so it's I definitely beautiful. definitely need split. to yeah definitely need to go and check it out. But it's also one of those things that you've got to know your customer and you've got to know exactly what they want because you could go and this is this is just business in general. It's not even just whiskey. It's like make you make something for the demand and whatever the product yeah, is true. there. I don't so, know if mistletoe brandy's like just. I know mistletoe it, it, brandy would do great at Christmas time. Around you know? here. But that's so. different. I mean, that's that, that's a that's different when it becomes a cultural thing versus a timely thing. And if your mistletoe brandy is something that is unique to the area that is something that tourists like that is something that the locals like to drink i mean it's the same thing as getting you know grappa in italy like it's yeah it doesn't do well in america but it does really well in italy yeah so croatia I, and i had to um because it's pronounced a few different ways in different countries but uh Rakizia is the their most common spirit there and it is a it is a brandy often a uh, plum or fig and uh, I wonder, I wonder if what he's talking about is actually an infused rakija uh, with mistletoe. That would be, I, I, I would say that you know that'd probably be a good, a, a good fit. That country likes herbal; it likes aperitif kind of stuff. And you know, Croatia's also got a lot of really great wines, and so like they're big in having wine with uh, with their food. In the spirits case, what they usually how it's customary there for them is like to have it uh, as an after dinner drink. But what's interesting uh, about Croatia is like a lot of people make their own stuff at home, and so like, and that's probably why he said, "Yeah, I'm making this," and that's that it's like a legal it, thing there it's than it is like, here. It's in the most countries, it's legal to distill your own stuff at home, and and like people have like their own like homemade brandy recipes. In Portugal, they have like, um, they, you know, they distill some unique stuff. In Greece, they will distill uh, tree resin. Every country is different, but Croatia is kind of is, is really, really well known uh, for Rakija. And there's a couple brands that are in the market. I can't remember the name of the brand, but it's owned by Bill Gold from uh, Faith No More. Uh, he's got a Rakija on the market, but it's a. Everything that I've ever had, and I've had it in competition as well and blind, I mean, it is good, good, good uh, sipping spirit. But it can, like, it does, like, make your belly feel good. Like, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I, like I, remember, like I remember, yeah, it's like a really digestive. good digestive. for whatever, but yeah. So assuming that mistletoe brandy is a popular thing, is that something you should pursue versus having, you know, a wide portfolio of spirits? I think the 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 way to actually go about this is, I always say the data doesn't lie. Go and talk to a, a few different local shops and you figure out and you say, what are your, your best selling products? Like, what are your top 10? So you go to five or 10 shops in, around your area and you figure out, okay, is it mistletoe brandy? Or is that just what you like? Just because what you like doesn't mean what everybody else likes. And so if gin or vodka or if um, some sort of locally crafted whiskey is actually a better seller, then you have to pivot. Like you have to make, you have to figure out exactly what is what is the customer demand and and what is that you're, you're able to do. And I want to go back to what Ryan said earlier, that 1,000 to 3,000 bottles a year, that's not going to cut it. Like that, you're not going to, you'll, you'll be underwater if that's what you think that you're only going to be able to create. Well, folks, you're also thinking, you're, you're putting... I'm, I'm looking at like actual like, you're, yeah, you're I'm not thinking US like 24 inch still time. I'm thinking like a, maybe a small copper pot still or something like that is probably what he's thinking of. But there's definitely a lot of different equipment that would be probably needed to be able to do this and yeah, I, but I don't think say, you're not going to get a break even at that we'll just do simple math to say you got three thousand bottles at thirty dollars a bottle you know it's going to cost you probably fifteen to twenty dollars a bottle to so you're going to make thirty thousand so, dollars a year on you know three thousand bottles well, i don't know you, that just doesn't seem do, yeah don't apply don't apply u.s business metrics here uh well i guess too is this a hobby or a business because because like uh you're it, croatia's part of the european union and there's a lot of agricultural grants that he can get. There's a uh, whether for hobby or or for whatever. And like I I would say what's his name? Alan. Alan. I I would say Alan. Take Great a look. Croatian name. Take a look into the what's happening in the in the department, the agricultural ministry of the European Union, to see like what's available there because the European Union constantly has uh, subsidies and things out there like that. 
for people on agriculture. And that's what we're looking at here. And like you could, you could start this thing overnight for, for nothing for a legitimate business. And you could also immediately get picked up in, in European union friendly, you know, liquor stores in France, Italy, wherever. Like, I mean, you, what you have, what you have in Croatia is access to an incredible drinking population. And I would say find where other Croatians live in the European union target those markets but first you got to figure out what you want to make but See, Croatians, this is why I'm glad Fred's on I have no idea how well I I love I love that area of, yeah. of the world I do, I, I do too I love it I've seen pictures of it yeah <laughs> I've been to Italy but I haven't been to but how many Croatia. times have we heard Bill Belichick is from Croatia if you or his family's from Croatia if you are a football fan that's been pounded in your you know, on ESPN Skull. over yeah. the years, and and knowing some Croatians as well, they are very, very proud of their country. So I would say, be proud of Croatia. Be proud of what you all make uh, native to your country, which is uh, Rakija or whatever brandy you're pursuing, and put Croatia big fat in the middle of the label, and you will attract uh, your fellow countrymen what all, do, all what over. What does mistletoe taste like, Fred? Do you know? Uh, I, honestly, I would assume, and I've- Doesn't that kill I, dogs? I have <laughs> not eaten, first of all, I have never eaten mistletoe or tasted it, but I Just would assume it it's going people. to be, I would assume it'd be a little like cedar or some kind of like a juniper or citrusy or some kind of weird- this like that. Gotcha. Yeah. And the part of his question was also, you know, do you focus a product that is popular on a local level or do you try to, and try to make it national or do you focus on already established types of spirits, which is probably your, you know, your, your gins, your rums, your whiskeys. Personally, I would look at it and say, is there already a big dog in your area or who are you competing with? Are you competing with somebody that else is putting out 3000 bottles a year and they can't satisfy the demand in the market? Then you can be another player in that game. I, I look at it as a, as a very analytical approach that, yes, it, you might be good, but is it is it better than what somebody else is already doing? Is there a big player? Is it something that is, is in hot demand? And then you can go ahead and sort of maneuver and kind of find that path. Well, and also it's, the, it, it's with every business or book. This is how I learned this process was through book proposals. If you are trying to create something to put out to, into the market and there's no competition, that's a bad sign because if there's right. no competition, <laughs> that, that means, means nobody wants it anyway. Nobody wants the, the yeah. category. And so you have to create something that the cat you know that consumers want. And you know what? There's a reason why there's not a lot of French whiskeys. There's a reason why. And so anytime like a new French whiskey comes out, you know, people taste it, it gets its run in the in the whiskey circuit, and then it kind of like fades over time. France is cognac, Armagnac, Calvados, wine, 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 champagne. Croatia is Rakija in, in like, you know, there's not really a lot of other things, you know, that's, that's known. And so I think the market for Allen is to sing from the rooftops, Croatia. That's, that's what I think the market is. And whatever he makes, whatever he, whatever, whether he makes whiskey, plum brandy, Vodka, if he puts Croatia on the label, I think it will be successful in other areas where Croatians are living. That's my opinion. And that's how you scale. That's how you get it to different markets as well. So, All right. Hope we helped. There's also kind of a, it's a second part to his question, but I feel like it also kind of deserves its own sort of answer as we start getting into this, because it, it can apply to a bunch of different things and it can apply to people that are just starting a whiskey brand or people that just care about labels. And he said also, as says, I'm very dedicated to the bottle and the label design because uh, it's a custom bottle and a label that I designed myself. Is this the right way to do it or am I wasting money? And this kind of goes to the thing of like, do we just go with something else that's just off the shelf? Yeah, once again, uh, if you're going custom, that's going to be money and you're going to need more than 3,000 bottles to create that mold and, you know, create those custom designs and molds and presses and punches for your label. And so that's going to come at an extreme cost. And so you're just going to have to do simple math and say, yeah, if I want to go, I would also too look at what there's a ton of bottles available that that are mass produced that you know, they're common, but they're not common. And so like, I would look there first to see how could I make my label because label design, you can get as custom as you want. It's not that crazy. Expensive. You can put a label on anything. Yeah. Yeah. But bottle design, my God, you know, you get in the 
the thirty, the forty thousand dollars just to get a mold made, you know, for that. And that's a sunk cost you gotta recoup. That's a lot of bottles you gotta recoup, you know. So I would try to look at, you know, what's available on the glass, say, how can we make this work? What can we do with the label to make it unique to us? And then if that still doesn't satisfy your need, look at what the custom is, but then you're gonna have to look at your your model and say, how do I recoup this cost in my bottles and how many will I have to sell to recoup that down the line? You, know, you said the, the mold is just one part of the cost because as soon as you start going down the, the path of a custom glass and even for our brand, I would love, absolutely love to do a custom glass. The problem is, is that you have a bunch of front end work to do that. You have to hire the right person, the right designer that can go and hey, how do you, how do you, how do you know who to talk to to say, hey, I need custom glass. Like I need, you don't talk to a graphic artist. Like there's there's somebody that's specialized in, in doing something like this because they have to know how to talk to, you know, whatever the CAD drawing to be able to figure out what this is going to look like. They also have to be a designer. Like it's, it's, a, it's a long process that probably goes into it. And so even when you're going to go into the custom glass side of things, like you have to realize that when you want to do this, you have to be a scale company. You're not going to be messing around with 10, 12, 30,000 bottles a year. Like you want to be in the, you know, half a million bottles a year. Like that's probably where you need to start off if you're going to go the custom glass route, because you need that, you need to be able to put enough product out there that's going to, you know, pay for the the mold. You know, you said $30,000. That's probably, just, that's probably the lowest. Yeah. I was just throwing a number out there. I mean, just, I, I, I've, I'm not going to say names, but there's, there's a, a very ornate decanter that comes out every single year from a very large company. And I've heard that mold costs upward of 80 to a hundred thousand dollars. And so that is something that, you know, and, and it depends on the country, whether you're going to China, Mexico, or Italy to have this manufactured, that's all going to play into the, the cost of it as well. Um, but for any brand that is just starting out, you know, you have different things. You've got uh saver glass that has a lot of cool bottles available, which I remember when we were starting to look through all our different manufacturers and I started looking through Saver Glass. You can just Google them when they're online. And I was like, wait a minute, they have the Old Forester birthday bourbon bottle. That's not <laughs> custom to Old Forester at all. Like anybody can go use that bottle. Like there's there's a lot of cool bottles that are out there on the market that you can get your hands on and you can build a brand around it. And you know, when you talk about the label, Ryan talked about the presses and be able to do foils and everything like that. But that's, I think that's second to everything. You've got to find the glass first. You got to figure out what is your, what are you trying to do? What are your, what's the attention you're trying to grab? Do you just want to be another wine bottle on the shelf? Which we talked about, that's the cheapest way to ever do anything is to have that standard wine bottle look. It looks nice because it's skinny, it's tall, it stands out, but you've also got to figure out how do you make your package look different than, than anybody yeah. else's too. How do you elevate that wine bottle so it doesn't look like everyone else's? I do think there are some rules that you have to follow if you're a new brand. Don't be too fat, don't be too tall, <laughs> and make sure your brand and font is legible and the, the least intelligent person in the room could read it if they can read. And that's, that's, that's really, you know, when it comes to bottles, I, I'm as impressed with the, the original bottle that you all use for your pursuit series as I am with the, with the, uh, old Fitzgerald decanter, like I bottle coolness does outside of a handful, very rarely wow me, but I'm a curmudgeon at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, ours was the original Parker's heritage-esque kind of looking bottle. But that was one of the things when we started, it was, you know, look at the bottles on the shelves that are already there. Odds are you're not going to go and find a bottle that nobody else is using. Like they, they wouldn't have stock yeah. bottles if somebody wasn't using it already. So you've just got to look at all the different bottles on the shelf, go to a liquor store and see which one speaks to you. Is there something that has rounded shoulders? Is it tall? Is it too skinny? Is it whatever it is? And, and that's how you look at it. I like the role of not too fat. I hate wide bottles, like extra wide bottles. I'm like, oh, yeah. like, like old force to birthday bourbon where you can't really like fit them on the shelves yeah. properly. And, and Even. It's, it's, we're talking about Europe here whose bars are not huge. You know, these will often be like one row bars and a restaurant will make a decision based on how big the bottle is. If they've not tasted anything, there are, you know, probably 5,000 different limoncellos in, in Italy. I love limoncello. I do too. <laughs> and they will make a decision based off of the bottle and how it fits on there. Like a, like a, a, a just a basic restaurant. They'll have five things on their, on their shelf. Jack Daniels, some random sherry, 
uh, a, a cognac and something else and a limoncello, and that'll that'll be there. And then they have a, a wine cellar, so the wine will be different. But that's it's all about how it will fit on the shelf. So I would say do some homework, Alan. Go into some restaurants in the in the areas you want to compete and see what the bottles look like and take notes. And so I'll have a follow-up question. This is not even scripted on here. I kind of want to ask you all. But Alan influenced? I mean, this- Well, I mean, we were talking about, we didn't really touch on labels, but I think there's a good question we can talk about labels because we just look at bourbon labels and we know exactly what legally has to be on there. Straight bourbon whiskey, Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, blend of whiskey straights, proof, and non-age dated, all this other kind of stuff. What is your thought on additional text like how much additional text like can fanciful you put on stuff fanciful non-chill filtered uncut single barrel select like how much stuff do you think that you should put on a label and at what point does it become distracting shopify's already taken the cash register online helping millions sell billions around the world But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. But I think there's a good question we can talk about labels because we just look at bourbon labels and we know exactly what legally has to be on there. Straight bourbon whiskey, Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, blend of whiskey straights, proof, and non-age dated, all this other kind of stuff. What is your thought on additional text? Like how much additional text like can you put on? fanciful stuff? Fanciful, non-chill filtered, uncut, single barrel select. Like how much stuff do you think that you should put on a label and at what point does it become distracting? It's tough. It's It, it depends on the brand. Like me personally... I like the important information, but the least amount of information that gets the point across. I don't like a lot of clutter, but but in the instance of like an older brand, like I don't know, I love reading the stories on the back and you know, I love seeing all the, you know, it might be an older label design that they've stuck through and you, I, I kind of like that, but to me less is more. Keep it simple, stupid, but uh that's that's just my opinion. I want information. Uh I don't I don't want so much um words like handcrafted, forged and blah blah blah. I mean, I like age, <laughs> yeah. I like age statements, I like uh state of distillation, straight bottled and bond, you know, things that have meaning to it. What about super rare and premium? Uh that means it means yeah. it means nothing to me and it means nothing to like new consumers uh, as well. Like I mean, you you talk to them and and like they they kind of gloss past that. There are there are some like words that will 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 stand out to them. I think cognac, cognac has done the best job of getting their marketing terminology down. It's VS VSOP XO extra XO, and tequila is not far behind with with uh, blanco uh, reposado anejo extra anejo, and it's uh, you know bourbon seems to be. You got one side that is is all about like the um, clarity and transparency, and then you have the other side still clinging to the uh, clutter, maybe very clutter. old, yeah. special yeah. reserve. This, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, who, but that's that's a little bit different. That's like the brand name. I'm thinking of just like let's just take the word non chill filtered for example. 
how important it is it that to, is so important to you, an you really educated, think- it's so important to an educated whiskey consumer because like you know if something's non-chill filtered and you see flocking on it when when it gets home most consumers will think it's it's flawed and flocking is is when you see like these white clouds and that's why you know, chill filtration even was invented to get rid of that to prevent returns. And if if you 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 almost need that for for your return purposes, like you could say, well, it says it's non chill filtered right there on the bottle. We're like, well, I don't know what that is. The only uh, reason I, I challenge that is because it seems that today almost every whiskey brand, whether it's you know the core staples of it, are all non chill filtered already. They could be carbon filters, some cut something like that. But no, I think there's still a lot of chill filtration. You know, Buffalo Trace certainly does a lot. You know, they take show it to you right there on the tour. They're proud of it. And and I think chill filtration, as we learned on an episode recently, that it can have an impact on the flavor too. So that's an information piece to me. So you think it's that's a that should be maybe a requirement. If it's non chill filtered, you should you should advertise it front or back. Any preference there? Um, I think that information needs to be on there. Now, now the the real estate of where things need to be on the bottle, that's a completely different discussion, right? Yeah. You know, but you know, I get caught up on the regulatory of what is bourbon and then finishes being being called bourbons. I get caught up in that, and that's a discussion for another day. But anything that tells you what's inside the bottle is an A plus for me. Like. Super rare, premium, handcrafted, small batch. Small batch is is a word that means nothing, by the way. There's a lot of discussion on that in our various podcasts and hell, emails will tell you more. But but there's so many words that take up real estate that don't matter. And I'm I'm looking at uh, Willet over here. Like Willet has some some language, and then they hand write in the proof, and they hand write in the age, you know, for the purple tops. And to me, that's great. They've developed their branding. It's like illustrious. They got that awesome font that they've had since forever. And, um, you know, it's a sexy bottle. It does the job, you know, and they don't they don't oversell the super premiumization crap. I always feel that if you have to say it's super premium, fine and rare, it probably isn't, <laughs> you know, you, because you don't have to you don't have to say it like it just should be sort of thing. I don't know. That's that's the way I, I kind of look at something. Like Happy that. doesn't have have that on there. I don't think. No, and that's but they also they, that was also back in the days when they couldn't give that stuff away too. Like I'm talking about, you know, yeah. somebody's coming out with a you know 15 year old Canadian whiskey and they have to put very old, fine and rare, super premium, limited edition. Actually, the word limited edition. She put the word limited edition on something that is really a limited edition, sort of like one time release. Mm. Mm. Maybe just. Take it down to L-E. <laughs> L-T-O. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that would... Well, I mean... Or does that just come I'm, across in, in the news and it's going to be gone before people Well, I'm just thinking about, about, like, you know, Four Roses Small Batch Limited Edition. I think I would rather say it on there because... It does do you, actually say Limited Edition yeah, on it. how do you decipher it from the, you know, the other one? But uh, not looking at them two side by side, but I think they're similar bottles. It just the other one says Limited Edition on it in cursive. You know who does a... I, this is who, in terms of like, uh, these are unique offerings. So when we talk about limited edition, we're essentially saying a unique offering like that one will not be repeated. Booker's does a great job. They used to just kind of be like random numbers. And now it's like uh, 2022-1. And then they'll have it branded as like, some patch. Pork chop this. Yeah, Mama's <laughs> Kitchen or Pork yeah. Chop or... Oven Dottie. Buster. They, they do a good job. And then they have some story on there too. Yeah, I and like that. I like that approach from them. I it's, like, I like, I like, I love the, the, the Booker's bottle. Love that. Like how they do it. All right. So our next question comes from Nick and he says, what's your opinion on the market potential of whiskeys made from unconventional grains, such as oat, sorghum, and buckwheat? Well, sorghum... That one is up. So we we need to be talking about cereal grains, and sorghum is a cousin to uh, yeah, it'd be like rum, more of a rum. Yeah, right? and, and sorghum is unfortunately the federal government has has a, accepted a distilled sorghum as a rum and a distilled sorghum as a whiskey, <laughs> and there's actually historic evidence of sorghum whiskey being made in like Minnesota and Wisconsin back in the 1800s uh, before there were definitions on what whiskey was. 
But uh, sorghum, I think we have to go outside of that. So if we stick to cereal grains and we look at things like oats, try to kale, rice, buckwheat, try man. Try to kale. I've never heard of that. Yeah, what's try to kale? I'm in uh, agriculture. Yeah, so uh, try to kale. Um, or is it just kale? Is kale? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it, it's, it's a hybrid. It's a hybrid grain. Uh, but what is it a hybrid grain of? It's uh, of a... We'll let you Google. I'm going to Google it. But Ryan, I'll kind of get your your opinion on this. Like uh, the thought of unconventional grains, are these going to be, you know, novelties for whiskey enthusiasts or is there a future interest in whiskeys beyond just traditional grains? Wheat and rye. It's a hybrid of wheat and rye. Okay. Yeah. I mean, as long as it tastes good, you know, I mean, you've always said it, you know, like why are all whiskeys three grains? Why aren't they four grains? You know, and it seems like three grain is kind of the... You know, but not that there can't be good four grains, and I think there's a place for them. Do I think they'll be as mainstream as, you know, the traditional three grain recipes or even two grain? Uh, I don't see that, but uh, and there's got to be a reason for that why they didn't do that a long time ago. I mean, almost, it's ease, almost, ease of growth. I mean, like so they oats oats is is the one grain that I think I could make a really strong case for, like making a bigger impact in an American whiskey and the oats just don't grow as much as they used to. But I, I think distilled buckwheat is like, I mean, it smells and tastes like unless it's been aged for a certain amount well, of time, it's awful. Here's the way I look at it. It's just going to be hard. I think there's a place for these unique grains. There's just no way they'll be on the scale of what corn is or wheat is or barley. Those are like three grains that held that you get, you know, there's massive amounts grown across the U.S. and they're so easy to come by, whereas these other grains are kind of, you know, grow in certain regions. They're not as yields aren't as much and this and that. And so there's a place for them. I just don't think they'll just from a, a supply standpoint, I don't think there's going to be a, a way to mass produce this. From maybe what, maybe you know. rice on the mass production side. Yeah, rice, of course. Yes, maybe rice. But I, I don't. Yeah, if you're looking at mass scale it's it'll never happen but at smaller scales look i really like penelope four grain i really like spirits of french like four grain i think there's something there uh i think it shows expressions of grain that uh have yet to have really been established when jim beam was doing their experimental series their harvest like harvest they had a brown rice one at they one had a point. brown rice and they had try to kale and they were the first to really play around with that that latest that basil hayden's the rice one isn't it and the, that, the, the no. toast yes the, the toast. toasted one yeah. yeah and so you know they've done they've done a lot of things there but i think that i think this is where when we talk about craft distillers this is where they have the big the bigger distillers whipped right like they have them beat and there it's not even close it's because and when you have these different oils and the fermenters and it comes down to uh, distilling, you need to be really close to the distillation side and knowing when to make your cuts of uh, heads and tails and having those hearts be juicy, full of all the essence of the grain and then it's aged in a barrel. Like they're very close to that. And the bigger distillers, I mean, they can they can create all the small micro stills they want. They are used to big, giant column distillation. And that is where I think the small distillers, if you if you find a grain, here's the problem. Getting to the point where you have a recipe that works and, and, and hits, that's the hard part. I thought Corsair did it with, uh, with their, was it three smoke, four smoke, triple smoke. I thought they nailed it with triple smoke. And this came out like uh, 2010 to 2013. Everybody wanted it. It was... It was it sold out as quick, but they kept doing experiments. And then people didn't want their additional experiments. They wanted triple smoke. And so that, you know, Corsair is a great case study of like they found their recipe, but they kept experimenting, which is the craft way. And I'm seeing with Spirits of French Lake too. I love what they do with, uh, with a lot of their products, but they're still experimenting. Once you find your recipe that works, stick with it and make that. I think that's... Well, you got to find the grain that works for you in like that, uh, that is unique, but that can be a part of the story that stands out and you can buy enough oats or rice or whatever, stay away from sorghum and make it work. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, the big column stills with the big boys and they don't have the attention to, cause it's all scaled, systemized and this and that, you know, with beam they're you know, they just installed that experimental craft distillery, you know, Freddie knows head in and I'm, 
I'm, I'm curious to see how that all evolves, you know, because they're doing the same thing, working with, yeah. you know, different grain mash bills and this and that. And so it's interesting to see them kind of get in that space. So maybe it is something that's going to appeal more, you know, widely than we think, but it's not going to ever be on a, because they had to install a smaller still to make it happen. They can't run it through their existing systems. Yeah. The other thing I look at is when we talk about the four and five green bourbons that did come to market, I wanted to think of as say like rabbit holes, boxer grill. I think it was, it had some chocolate malt. It had a few other things, Right. but you see other ones that have oats in them, but these specialty grains are what less than 5% of the grain bill. So often th- yeah. that has that has to show you something like that has to either show you that there's either not a product or how much do you try to go against tradition and create something that could be a failed experiment down the line. You you go with what works and you, you try to figure that out, too. If you do try to you know go through this whole idea of, well, I'm going to I'm going to bet the farm on making sure that I have a, a special buckwheat bourbon. Right. Do you go and try to educate the consumers about it or you just try to hide it because if it turns out so so and it's not any better than the big guys i don't think it's really worth your time to sit there and try and do mass education to say this is what makes my bourbon better yeah i think it's just one of those things that it's just it's just part of what it is it's just part of your grain bill i don't think it's something that you should hang your hat on and make a and make a thing that says oh yeah we we do good buck we we do great oh we do great rice bourbon I, I don't think that's the that's the the key that makes you a, a differentiator. I know there's other distilleries that say like, "Oh, our corn is you know blue maize corn." Like, I don't give a bloody, shit. It's got to be butcher. good. Yeah. It's got it's got to yeah. be good. And if it's not good, then I don't care. I'd rather have something traditional. So don't don't tell me about how good your your grain is if it's not any better than pretty pretty much what's on the market. There's also that aspect of like the consumer preferences are changing and they're very open right now. And I think they're acceptive in like different kinds of rye. Like uh, there's new breeds of rye that are hitting the market, different types of wheats. But I don't think they are when it comes to corn. When it comes to bourbon, like corn is kind of like, oh, that's great. You have bloody butcher corn. <laughs> yeah, we don't is need to know though? the variety. You know, <laughs> it's just like, you know, that I think it's a, it's a little different. So I think it's like if you are trying to make a bourbon, you can play around with the corn all day long. I'm just going to tell you, that there's a reason why the big distillers have predominantly picked A2 yellow corn because it works really, really well in column distillation. If you are doing pot still distillation, you ha- you can do some things that are different that extract different higher percentages of oils, but you've got to you've got to make sure you don't veer too far off of of what bourbon typically tastes like. You can definitely go on a different path, but you still got to have some of the tenets of, of a bourbon palate. And I think a great brand that's done that is Chattanooga. You know, oh, they, absolutely. They like has all the bourbon characteristics you want, but it's just that maltiness. It's just, just on the edge of like, you know, something that's not bourbon that it's kind of, you know, it's perfectly balanced between the two of like something that's extremely unique but also a great home base so they they masterfully created that product you know to to really get bourbon consumers to latch onto it but it's just different enough to where you, you it's not it's not so different or you just like totally dismiss it it's it's got all the flavors you want but enough difference that it makes it unique so and i know this whole this whole episode is about like tips for starting a brand and i just have to say tim and the folks at chattanooga i mean they they had to sue for the right to have a distillery. They had to to pass laws for the right to have a distillery. And I think like anybody who has the opportunity to start a brand now, I mean, there's a whole other aspect of regulations and things that you, you know, you're getting an opportunity now because people have been busting their ass for the last 25 years for you to have that right to open a distillery. And you may be in a market that no longer allowed. And Chattanooga is a great example of someone who's laid the path uh, not just for the market of a new style of bourbon, uh, which they have done with their high malt, but also that they have, uh, you know, basically cleared a path for people who want to open distilleries in their area. That's another whole another aspect of of, of uh, starting a brand. That, that that takes it to the the nines right there. To yeah, actually I'm not sure. I'm not sure we can consult on that. <laughs> no, I just, but you know, <laughs> Chattanooga. Yeah. but Chattanooga needs, no, it's needs a to have that love. Story. You know, they, oh, totally. They they. They I mean, the shit they went through to get their yeah. brand going. It's it's amazing. It's 
Yeah, kudos to them. I know. I know. What episode are they? If they want to, people want to go listen to them. No, oh, I have to go back and, and look. I can I can find it here in a minute. I'll I'll start going through the next question. So the next is as we start talking about brands, brands have to get their product out to market. And so I, there, this was an anonymous question that came in, and it says, "How does a new brand analyze when it's time to add a new state in which to sell? How deep should you go within one state before simply just widening the net with a new state?" Yeah, that's a great question. It's something, you know, we're kind of going through too. And so, I mean, it, I, you know, it, it all depends on what, how much product you have, how much product you have in the future. Cause you don't want to go to a new state if you're just going there one time, you know, cause these distributors, they want to be, you know, they want to make money, but they also, they don't want to invest a ton of time in you if you can't deliver on the goods in the future. And so if, if you're like, I just want to go to the state just cause it'd be fun one time that's not a good way to go about it because these distributors have a ton of money, ton of investment in you and trying to get your products on the shelves. And so if, if you don't have the product to sustain that, then I would avoid that. If you do it, you just look at like, okay, say uh, if I'm going to have, maybe I don't have the product now, but I have enough to sustain it, you know, in a few locations that I think it'll do well, but in the future I'll have a, ton of product and I need to push it there, then then I would explore other states and other markets. But two, you don't, if you're successful in one state and you know, you're really just killing it, you don't want, and you, but you, you don't want to pull product from people that are buying it just to go explore new territories. And that's what we're kind of dealing with here in Kentucky is, you know, all of our local distilleries have started pulling product to go into these new markets, you know, and states that may not give a shit about them. You know, we hear all the time you go to Montana or Idaho or Texas or this or that. And you're like, oh, well, we can find this. All, that's the, all the wellers. All the, the weller. And then you're like, well, hell, we're in the damn state. We can't even find it here. So that's, you got to draw that balance of like, not pissing off the people that brought you to the dance, but... I think if you had to be, you had to be certain special to also be at the point where you're like, oh, Weller's cleared on the shelves. And if we think about a new brand, I also think about how stale can you get? Because if you are in your backyard and you're pushing and you're promoting your product there, you only have so many resources. Unless all of a sudden you think like, oh, I can hire Salesforce. I can go and have people dedicated to certain markets to have them help continually promote the brand. If you're just on your own or you and somebody else or another partner or whatever it is, well, you have the opportunity to say, okay, well, we can we can hedge our bets in one area and let's go ahead and promote it. If you, and you have to see what that sell-through is. If they're going to continually keep ordering and reordering and reordering, then you know what you're doing is is well. However, if you just put it out there and you don't promote it or you don't try to get the sales, it sits there stale. How do you try to scale that? Well, all you're going to do is you say, okay, well, I'm going to open up another state so I can sell more product. But if you're not going to promote it, then the same thing's going to happen. And so all you're doing is you're casting that net out. But if you're not promoting it in those different markets, it it's not going to sell. And so you're not going to have a happy distributor because you're not their product's not selling. They're not getting reorders from you. And you're going to continue this vicious cycle of, well, now I'm going to spread myself over five different states, but it's just sitting on shelves. I don't have any sort of promotion going towards it. And two, you got to think like, what's the competition like in that state? You might be killing it on the West Coast, but you want to come to Tennessee, Kentucky, the Southern states, and you're a West Coast brand, people aren't going to resonate with you as much. And it's like, why waste your time over here in the South where that's so competitive, you know, with bourbon, but you can be as unique on the West Coast. You kind of have to navigate that as well. It's like even brands here, they because the the landscape is so competitive, they find pockets in the, throughout the country that they can like capitalize on the market because there is not as many brands available and they can kind of get in there and be the the name in that particular or own that state that's not as competitive. So you, you got to just see how what competition's like, where are there are places that I can make a name for myself where others aren't, or do I want to own this specific area because I'm geographically close to it and whatnot. So a lot of factors. I got a, I got a couple thoughts here. And, you know, one is how I have tracked, you know, audiences of bourbon interest, meaning people who will download a podcast, will watch a YouTube video, will will read a book or buy a magazine. And there's about, there's probably legitimately 20 states that, you know, you can roll the dice and you have as good of a chance of getting a consumer just to rip it off the shelf without even looking you up just because you're new on the shelf. You know, so there's 20 states that you can probably get, you know, get to that point. Most of them are in the um, 
in in the south southeast uh, ohio illinois parts of california new york obviously and places like you know connecticut but um i i think you got to find out what are your core states of people that are in your email newsletter people that are following you on social media there's a lot of analytical tools that you can get for free find out where those states are and choose where you think you might have the greatest strength the other the other option i would offer you is that we live in a wonderful time to be a new brand in which you can develop a partnership with an online uh, retailer that can legally sell your product and ship it to any number of states. One of those is uh, is Sealbox. Uh, Sealbox, which is Blake uh, Blake Ryber owns, and he's frequently on the on the Bourbon Roundtable. He works exclusively with with craft brands trying to grow. You know their presence. There, there are other ones. There's a one called Mash and Grape Reserve Bar. Reserve Bar. There's a bunch of them out there, and so there, there are ways you can hit consumers and not actually, you know, focus. You can hit twenty, twenty two states or something with one retailer. Uh, so, you know, that's an option. But never underestimate anonymous your access to analytical tools within your social media. Definitely agree. I think these are yep. all great thoughts. Yep. With that, I think we're going to wrap it up for this one. This was uh, another good session where we got to take your questions that are out there. If you have questions that you want to pose to us, you can go. The form is online. It's brbn.at slash consult. So bourbon.at slash consult. And we'd be happy to take these for a potentially future episode as well. I think these are fun because we get to look at a grab bag, maybe an ask me anything kind of kind of scenario here. So it's really interesting to kind of hear your questions and what you like to see of, of brands. And there's actually other questions of people that want to get started on social media. They want to get started on different things and, and we can take a lot of those different questions in, in different ways. So please keep the questions coming and we'll bring these uh, these more episodes with you. But also make sure you follow us on all the socials. Follow our buddy Fred Minnick over here. Sign up to never miss an episode with our emailing list. And of course, always leave us a review and tell a friend about it. If, they, if you like these episodes and they're into bourbon, they're probably going to like them too. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next week. <laughs>